0: Hello and welcome to this third Geopolitical Economy Hour. I'm Radhika Desai.
1: And I'm Michael Hudson.
0: And as many of you know, in this collaboration with Ben Norton's Geopolitical Economy Report, Michael and I will present every fortnight a discussion of the major trends and developments that are so radically shaping our world. Issues that involve not just politics and economics, but as Michael and I and Ben like to put it, political economy and geopolitical economy. Thanks also to all our viewers for your interest and engagement. Let's, we would like to say that we do read all the comments with great interest, so please keep them coming, including your suggestions for future shows. So as we advertised last time, we, are, today we are going to do uh, deal with de-dollarization. And this, for us, is a really big theme, and we are going to take our time dealing with it. We will probably do at least two shows, maybe even a bit more. But in any case, since it's such a big thing, let's just get started. Michael, what does de-dollarization actually refer to? What are people talking about when they when they say de-dollarization is occurring? Can we make a an inventory of the main things people are referring to?
1: Well, President Putin and President Xi have both been uh, talking about de-dollarization. So that has um, put it right in the center uh, of the discussion. Uh, Basically, it's a response to the fact that the United States has weaponized the dollar. Uh, It's become a political tool in today's uh, Cold War. Uh, For one thing, the dollar is no longer a safe haven. Uh the United States uh had Britain confiscate Venezuela's gold supply in England, and uh the United States and Europe have confiscated all of Russia's uh, uh foreign exchange holdings in dollars and euros. So that has made countries realize we uh if the United States is going to say it's the world banker, uh and the world banker is going to just take our money, uh we've gotta find another banker, and that means finding another currency. This is
0: certainly, yeah, one of the ways in which the sanctions have boomeranged. And then there are also other indicators. For example, the level of uh, dollars and the the, the share of dollars in the reserves of central banks around the world is going down. It had been some 70 percent. Now it's 60 percent. It's still quite high, but it is going down. Uh, and there is also a couple of other things going on. Michael mentioned uh, all these discussions that the Chinese and the Russians and other people are having. There's also a huge spread of bilateral agreements between countries, particularly over the last year with sanctions on Russia and so on, they have been proliferating. So India and Iran, Russia and Iran, China and Iran, etc. Various countries are agreeing to accept each other's currencies in their mutual trade. And then there is also the new payment systems they are creating. So, so you know, when the uh, United States said that they were going to kick Russia out of the SWIFT international payments information system, everybody sort of got the message. In fact, as Michael said just now, you know, the fact of the matter is that the weaponization of the dollar system didn't start in 2022 with the conflict over Ukraine. It's been going on for a while. The, uh, Michael mentioned the confiscation of um, Uh, of the uh, uh, Venezuela's reserves and now, of course, Russia's reserves. But remember also, there was that huge and scandalous episode of the vulture funds in Argentina, in which basically the American legal system, uh, completely contrary to the rules of the international game, ruled in favor of vulture funds and against Argentina, which also showed you that the United States is, you know, whatever the United, the, the, the casino, the United States is running is totally loaded in favor of the House, even more than normally. But there are also a couple of other things that I should, pro- we should probably mention. One is, of course, the availability of alternative sources of finance, particularly from China, but also the emergence of other institutions like the new development bank, which was created by the BRICS and so on. And finally, there are also this whole issue of central bank digital currencies, which are going to be uh, increasingly being named as being quite important um, as a way of displacing the dollar from uh, its from its centrality hitherto in the world monetary system. Is there anything I've forgotten, Michael?
1: Quite a bit, uh, actually. The point that we're going to be making uh, throughout uh, this whole discussion is that uh, the dollar really isn't an international currency. It's a national currency and uh it being that it reflects american self interest and uh one of the problems is that right now uh countries have to find themselves they have to support the dollar when they get a dollar inflow they're worried about uh, uh their currency going up against the dollar uh, and even more so now, uh, the global South countries are worrying about the fact that uh since raw material oil and gas and food and other and minerals are uh, uh, denominated in dollars, now that the United States is raising its interest rates uh, in order to uh, prevent wages from rising and causing a uh, a slowdown uh, that makes uh, these materials more expensive in the local currencies of South America, Africa, and Asia, and countries want to say, how can we uh, make these prices of uh, the raw materials, uh, for instance, oil? that we're uh, importing from uh, Russia. How can we make it stable and not going up just because the dollar uh, is raising its interest rates and making it more expensive uh, uh, to pay uh, oil? So uh, that's why they're doing just what you described, making uh, agreements among themselves to uh, transact other uh, oil uh, sales and uh, other sales in domestic currency that the Saudi Arabia agreements with Russia, with China, uh in order to uh price in their own currency. Uh India is uh joining the crowd. So people are realizing we've got to have something that is more objective and not subject to national uh manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and wins,
0: exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: In fact, uh, you know, uh, we will be discussing all of these things, even in greater detail towards the towards the end of this, this set of dollarization, de-dollarization shows. But maybe, Michael, we should also tell people why, uh, the, something about the fact that both you and I have been writing about this for eons. And Michael, you certainly have a long head start on me. So why don't you tell the people a little bit about your own work, particularly super imperialism, very briefly before we go on to our show. And then I'll, I'll say something about my work.
1: Well, super is different from the old form of colonialism. Colonialism was all based on military occupation uh, and, uh, and by, essentially by force and by block currency areas. Uh, but super is basically how the United States has uh, gotten a free ride from the rest of the world, how the United States has dominated other economies, not by uh, the old colonialist form, not by uh, having uh, a military force in uh, many countries, but in monetary forms. So the new form of imperialism uh, is essentially monetary and financial in character. Uh, And it works via the uh, American control of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, that oblige other countries to uh, make their economic focus of their economies, helping the United States, the United States balance of payments, financing the U.S. military spending abroad, financing the American takeover, uh, being willing to balance their uh, uh, foreign exchange by privatizing and selling off their public infrastructure to American and foreign investors. So uh, the new form of imperialism is financial, Much more than military, and even the military force of American uh, policy has become financialized.
0: That's yeah, so super imperialism is really one of the sort of foundational texts to really try to understand why it is that um, the dollar system is tottering right now. Because if you've always been saying that the dollar system is sort of all you know perfectly fine, then it's difficult to understand its unraveling. So, what Michael has done and what I have done in my So what Michael did in superimperialism was important for me. And then I elaborate on this argument in my geopolitical economy, which was published in 2013. And in this book, I basically show, you know, uh, one of the best ways of introducing this book is like this. You may have heard people say that the dollar was once hegemonic and it is no longer so. You may have heard other people say that the dollar has always been hegemonic and will always remain so. But you've never heard people say that the dollar never really stable hegemony. And that is the argument of geopolitical economy. So geopolitical economy exposes the clay feet on which the United States giant actually stands. It exposes the contradictions of the dollar system. And of course, since then, Michael and I have also elaborated both on you know, his own views, which have of course developed over the decades, and Michael's done a lot of other work on, on this matter, and my own work has continued to develop, uh, particularly vis-a-vis trying to understand how the sterling system, to which the dollar system has always been compared, actually Worked, and we put together in a very short form the summary of our uh, um, of our work in a paper entitled "Beyond the Dollar Creditocracy: uh, A Geopolitical Economy." So uh, this is a short version of our argument. So those of you who are interested, please uh, take a look. We will be sharing the links to all these things in our uh, in our uh, in, in in the notes to this show. So obviously, so 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 this is what. This is why we really have a lot to say about de-dollarization, which is of course the flavor of the month. Um, uh, so, so, so we'd like to share our understanding in this show and the next. So, what the dollar system? What was it really? What were its contradictions? Exactly? What are the ways in which these contradictions are now maturing and how it is unraveling today? And this is also interesting because you know in a certain sense, you know, the dollar system has always been very unstable and shaky. So it has always had its doomsayers. But the fact is that until recently, the dollar system has somehow managed to keep on top of things. So there has always been this way way of dismissing those who talked about the problems of the dollar system, you know, saying that the dollar's doomsayers are a dime a dozen. uh, And, you know, they are never proved right. But now, of course, All the problems to which they are pointing to are maturing, so it really helps to have been a critic of the system. And what's now happening, very interestingly, is that there are people in some very, it's the people in high places who are talking about de-dollarization. Let me just give you a couple of prominent examples. So one of them is Zoltan Pojar. Zoltan Pojar is the global head of short-term interest rate strategy at Credit Suisse. And he has also formerly worked for the U.S. Federal Reserve as well as the U.S. Treasury Department. So in um, early the earlier last year, so around about a year ago in uh, in March 2022, he wrote a sort of a fairly. Controversial piece, or was, uh, yeah, a piece that made the news called We Are Witnessing the Birth of a New Monetary Order. And he wrote this a week after the United States seized the Russian reserves, as we were uh, discussing just now. And what is the reason that he gave for why there will be a birth of a new monetary order? From the start, Bourgeois has pointed to one critical thing, which we'll come back to towards the end of the show when we are return to discussing the crisis of the dollar more fully. He focused on commodity prices and he basically said that commodities are becoming more attractive than the money that is produced by the us financial system and more recently very interestingly in in an article uh, uh, quite recently on uh, last month i think on in the financial times he also uh, added the emergence and the increasing proliferation of central bank digital currencies particularly in countries that are outside the imperial core of the world system. He named that as being another uh, a, a major factor. So that's Zoltan Pojar. Now, a second important and, and prominent person who has who is pointing to the demise of the dollar is Nouriel Rubini. Some of you will remember that Nouriel Rubini. Um, is uh, was uh, called doctor doom uh, because in the run up to the 2008 financial crisis when the bubble was still inflating rubini was predicting its bursting and actually you can probably still find videos uh, uh, on the uh, uh, on on the um uh, on the YouTube in, where, where people are laughing at him when he predicts the, to, predicts the inevitable crash, which in fact happened in 2008. So now Rubini is fingering geopolitics for de-dollarization in an article, uh, quite recent article in which he which is entitled A Bipolar Currency Regime Will Replace the Dollar's Exorbitant Privilege. So uh, that's, uh, and of course, he also mentions the emergence of central bank digital currencies outside the imperial core as importantly contributing to it. And also, as Michael's mentioned, in the context of boomeranging sanctions, we also hear it widely reported that Putin and President Putin wants to develop an alternative currency system and has appointed his uh, 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 his one of his advisors who's really big on Eurasian integration, Dr. Sergei Glaziev, as the lead organizer of this system. So these are some of the indicators that something quite important is going on. However, Michael and I also feel that we need to have a more systematic discussion of this, because the fact of the matter is that the story of dollarization, that is to say, the dollar system itself has been such an ideological and deeply flawed discourse one of whose purpose was precisely to always talk up the dollar, which was always on shaky foundations. So there was always a big industry of people talking up the dollar. So so and and those who are trying to criticize also end up being like scholars who are, you know, the blind scholars who are looking at the elephant, you know, the one who thinks uh, who's holding the tail thinks it's long and skinny and the one who's holding the leg thinks it's big and thick and so on. So. That there's there's different parts of the story we want to put together. Very few. We, we look at the history and the fundamental instability of the system. Uh, both Michael and I have done that. And we will also look at, we will in fact begin by understanding why it's unstable, why the a national currency cannot be a world's currency and so on. So that's what, and we are also going to look at the sterling system. So, The fact is that the discussion of the dollar's career as the world money has been dominated by U.S. scholars who have been professional boosters. One of the key examples of this is Charles Kindleberger. This is the guy who proposed what's commonly or what's in the literature called hegemony stability theory. Uh, and he basically said that the, uh, you know, the uh, the in the interwar period there was a big crisis. The Great Depression occurred because the UK, the United Kingdom, was no longer able, and the United States was not yet willing to provide leadership to the world system, and of course, providing the world with uh, with a currency, with national, you know, its national currency as the world's currency was one of the elements of this leadership. So this discourse has tended to naturalize the dollar's role, partly by naturalizing Sterling's role. And we are going to show that none of this is natural. In fact, We'd like to structure our discussion in terms of a very clear set of questions. We have about 10 of them, and we think that we are going to be able to get through the first five in this show and the next five in the next show. So we will be beginning by discussing what is money? Why does it appear to take national forms? Can there be world money? Secondly, what is the relation of money and debt? And Michael in particular has done a lot of work on this and we want to talk about this. Then we want to talk about whether money is a commodity. And there I've shown, for example, that Polanyi, of course, said money is not a commodity and Marx would have agreed with him. And we've we'll talk about that a little bit. Then we want to talk about what is the theory of how the dollar has served as world money. And since that theory relates to The Sterling system always refers back to the Sterling system. We need to show how the Sterling system actually worked or rather did not work and what were its instabilities and so on. And then in the next show, we want to talk about how that system ended, what really happened between the wars. And Michael gave you a flavor of that just now. Then we will talk about the so-called Bretton Woods 1, the dollar system between 45 and 71. When the dollar's gold link was broken, did it really work? You know, what What were its real dynamics? Then we want to ask whether there really was a Bretton Woods 2. And then finally... We want to come to the big crisis as it is unfolding today, and what are the major elements of it? You know, what does it have to do with the rise of China, the rise of other economies, central bank digital currencies, commodities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that is our agenda, Michael. I've spoken for a long time, and you probably have a few things to add. So please.
1: Well, the common denominator of uh, what we're saying is we focus on uh, the political. Uh, instabilities and uh, what used to be called internal contradictions. Uh, P- Reddick is right when she says that the people uh, like Triffin and Kindleberger uh, have treated somehow uh, the dollar supremacy as if it's uh, natural. And if it's natural, it's inevitable. And really, there's nothing you can do uh, to change all of this. Uh, but if you look at the international uh, monetary system as political, then you realize it's all about change that's what politics is all about and uh if you're uh, writing for the kind of audience uh that Mr. Rubini and uh, the other uh, others wrote about uh you can't really come out and talk about what uh, Radhika and I are saying uh we're talking about uh that which must not be said uh, in the major uh, media uh about uh, the causes of the instability being exploitative uh when uh um, Uh, people talk about wouldn't it be nice to have commodities as the basis of world trade? Well, nobody's going to have central bank reserves held in the form of grain or oil. Uh, They will hold it in gold because for the last 4,000 years, that's something that everybody can agree upon is an objective, physical thing beyond the ability of uh, uh, individual uh, countries to uh, affect. But the whole idea is that if we're talking about money and money's political, you want something that is political, that countries can can influence. And the question is, how are you going to influence in whose interest? And uh, that's why what we're doing is explaining this historically uh, in the sequence that Radic has described so that you can see if you understand that historically, you realize what the fight's been all about for the last hundred years.
0: So that's really great, Michael. And uh, I just perhaps, w- in fact, you, you already said some of the things that are related. So let's deal with the first question, which is what is money? Why does it appear to take national forms? Can there be world money? Do you want to maybe just start us off, Michael?
1: Well, all money uh, is debt. Uh, the dollar bills in your pocket are technically on the liability side of uh, the U.S. Treasury. And if the U.S. Treasury would get out of debt, it would have to redeem all the money, presumably for gold or something else, and there wouldn't be any money, but there wouldn't be any debt. So uh, basically, if money's debt, who is going to be the beneficiary of the debt? Who is this debt going to be owed to? Well, most money, uh, the government owes uh, debt to uh, the economy if we're talking about uh, uh, physical money, uh, the physical currency, uh, the, the greenbacks uh well most greenbacks or 100 dollar bills are uh, stuffed in uh, the mattresses of drug dealers and arms dealers and uh uh people all outside of the united states most american currency is held out in the united states not in it uh but actually if you look at what monetary theorists are talking about money money is uh what you have in the bank it, it's not only physical currency it's demand deposits it's uh it's uh the uh it's bank credit and uh banks create credit and banks create money and uh what do they create money for it well they create it electronically uh you go into a bank uh you say you want a loan to buy a house uh the bank creates a bank deposit in your name uh and uh the in exchange the bank has a, a liability you sign a note saying uh i promise to pay the bank and i pledge my house as collateral and uh, anything else the bank can grab in case i can't uh pay the uh pay the loans, so uh, bank credit is money, and the uh, the difference between bank credit and government credit is governments basically, if when they create money, they spend it on something that's supposed to be in the public interest, like World War III is uh, America's main private interest now, so most of the budget deficit is to fight in Ukraine to uh, start World War III. Uh, there's a little bit of social spending in there, too for uh social security and uh medicare but when banks create credit uh and uh we have a chart about this uh they create it uh for uh to buy houses for mortgage credit they create it essentially against assets that are already in place because they want something to grab so the the uh, money that banks create uh is used to buy houses and that bids up their prices which is why uh, housing prices have gone up so much, uh, or it's to enable corporate raiders to uh, buy a company and load it down with uh, with debt. So the, the money that's been created has gone hand in hand with a huge expansion of debt. And uh, the problem with this is that uh, uh, the debts grow faster than the economy. The rate of interest uh, for the last hundred years has been higher than the rate of economic growth. And that's been the case since Babylonian times 5,000 years ago. Uh, And uh, the rate of interest uh, grows faster than the economy. Then uh, the debt grows more and more and more. And uh, what people think is, well, there's more money uh, to buy houses, more money to buy stocks and bonds under quantitative easing. But it turns out that all this money is debt. And uh, there's an internal tension of all of this is uh, how can uh, economies – Pay debts that grow faster than the economy is growing. The long picture that we're talking about is that debts tend to grow faster than the ability to pay. Uh, most people think of a business cycle as going uh, very smoothly, like a sine curve, uh, steadily, uh, and as if somehow the economy can keep chugging along. Uh, but uh, that's not how economies work. Uh, over time, uh, every recovery in the United States since World War II and Europe has uh, started from a higher and higher and higher uh, rate uh, debt overhead. And right now, they've, uh, America's reached its limit. Well, that's the problem that America is posing for the world economy. How can a country that is deindustrialized, that's in debt, that is uh, shrinking, dominate the whole uh, rest of the world simply by saying, we're going to write IOUs and you have to support it? That's, the, uh, that's the, uh, what makes the nature of money. The essence of the kind of financial imperialism that we're seeing.
0: Yeah, that's that's great, Michael. So really, what Michael you've said is that basically money is debt. Money is debt that is owed to somebody. And I'd like to add to that because Michael's already pointed to the uh, sort of alluded to the fact that you can have. The debt created by a privately owned financial system or a financial system whose financial institutions are privately owned, in which case the money that is necessary to create and is necessary to create as debt, it also becomes the source of private profit for a small number of people but historically we know that we have known other kinds of money where the state issues money where the state is the liability sorry where the money that is created is a liability of the state and Practically all well-organized financial systems that are not prone to crisis, that are not prone to predatory lending, in which debt does not expand exponentially beyond far beyond the capacity to pay, are actually run by states that heavily regulate the financial system prevent them from going into uh, a, a speculation and so on. So so, so Michael's already sort of waded into the relation between money and debt. And I thought I would add that. But just returning for a minute to the question of what is money, I just like to say as well that, you know, it is very common, actually, both among uh, a mainstream as well as critical thinkers to sort of tend to a talk as though money is a commodity. You will even find many Marxists who say that Marx thought money was a commodity. In reality, money is not a commodity. Money is actually an ancient social institution. It arises from old... Um, uh, uh, so sort all of practices of essentially keeping accounts, keeping accounts of who owes what to whom, keeping accounts of debt, etc. So that's the first thing one should say. The second thing is that you know, uh, and this is very relevant to our present conversation, money is necessarily national. It's not some Kind of quirk of history that means that you know in the United States we have dollars in the UK we have pounds sterling and blah blah and so on you know all the different national currencies. The fact of the matter is that capitalism itself tends to create not a a single world a world you know a single world empire no matter how much how strong the United States is it necessarily creates a world of competing national states if they are all capitalist and of course. In more recent times, over the past century and more, we've also seen the rise of socialist states. So this tremendously changes the social, uh, the the nature of money. And here I'm sort of going a little bit into the third question as well. What is money a commodity? But let me just say that that is one thing. Money is not is it is not a commodity. What is true, however, is that capitalism needs to impose upon the functioning of money. Some commodity type dynamics, particularly by making it artificially scarce um, or as we have seen in the recent past, when it has been issued in abundance by central banks like the like the Federal Reserve, it has been issued in vast quantities, obscene quantities, astronomical quantities, but chiefly so that a small elite can use this money in order to inflate asset markets and benefit from that. It has not been. For ordinary people. So, for most ordinary people, money has to be kept scarce. So, in that sense, that, that is the only relation money has to commodities so money necessarily takes national forms now this is often explained particularly these days when modern monetary theory has become so fashionable by saying that all money requires an a state which will not only issue it but will also accept it in the payment of taxes and that's what gives money its currency but i think this is not the only thing There is an additional thing because, you know, this sort of is almost like a neoliberal model where the state only performs this night watchman function, which in this case includes the provision of money. In fact, most economies are objectively national. I mean, take, you know, just a simple example of Canada, which is a tenth of the size of the United States, sitting right next to the United States. But the Canadian economy is distinct from the American economy. Just to give you one little example, the 2008 meltdown didn't happen in Canada, even though I and so many other ways the economies are so interconnected. So there are more reasons there are national economies on the whole bulk of the economic transactions within an economy take place within national economies. So in that sense, money must also take national forms. And indeed, precisely because there is no world state. In fact, in capitalism we will not see a world state precisely because of that there is no world money which has a big implication for our uh, for, for 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 dollarize for understanding the dollar's world role which is that the attempt to create uh, to, to to impose a national currency on the world is uh, is bound to be extremely unstable volatile and contradictory so, Michael, I, I'm sure maybe we, you can add anything you like on the first three questions. You know, what is money? What is its relationship to debt? And is it and well, we have to say some more to say about whether money is a commodity.
1: What makes money not a commodity is that it doesn't have a cost of production. Gold has a cost of production. Silver does. But a commodity is created electronically and banks uh, can create a million dollar loan to buy a house simply with a, a, a click of the uh, a computer keyboard. So there's no inherent value, but there is a debt, and uh, the debt's very important. So money becomes, for the banks, a rent-extracting privilege. Uh, An interest on this credit is like economic rent. Uh, and uh, so basically, banks have the privilege of just uh, creating their own money, meaning they've created their product, debt. For the rest of the economy. And at a certain point, uh, and we've reached that point today in the United States and much of Europe, a point comes where the debts can't be paid. Uh, and if we're talking about international money, the dollars that are held in uh, the foreign exchange reserves of China, Russia, uh, and other countries, there's no way that the United States can pay off the treasury IOUs that it's paid. Uh, that uh, owes foreign central banks if they say okay we want to cash it in what are they going to cash it in for they can't get gold anymore unless they just sell the treasury bills on the uh, open market and uh, that'll push gold prices way up Uh, what can they do the united states can't even pay its domestic debt but nobody expects governments to pay off their own money Nobody expects uh, the, the U.S. or England or Canada to say, OK, we're going to pay off the debt. There won't be any dollar bills anymore because money's debt. But people internationally, it's different. Governments do expect uh, their foreign exchange reserves to have some real value uh, as if it were a commodity but it's not a commodity it's a it's a, a debt and uh, the creditor has uh, all of the power in this case and though the united states uh in imperialism uh, is dominating the economy not as a uh creditor now but as a debtor it owes so much money to foreign central banks that it can say, well, if you want your dollars to have any money and you don't want us to grab uh, the dollars like we grab Russia's dollars, you'd better follow what the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank uh, that are, are right close to the White House uh, tell you to do.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I, I further wanted to add that as well. You know, when you another way of thinking about it is if money is debt, then money is a relation. It's not a commodity. It is not a single object or entity or anything like that. And of course, as most of you will appreciate, money is also a system. But I wanted to add a couple of more points about why, how money is not a commodity. Because gold has played such an important role in the recent and modern history of monetary history of the world, people think that, you know, gold and silver were money. Gold and silver were not money. Gold and silver were money material. Let me just give you a small example you may have had a, 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 a regime of gold coins in which gold coins circulated, but they did not circulate as gold. If they had circulated as gold, every time you accepted a gold coin, you would have had to test whether it is actually gold, whether it has the right gold content, what is its exact weight. And this is not how money ought to function. If Money ought to function as you—you you are given a piece of money and you accept it because it is valid, legitimate, etc. Gold functioned as money because it was minted by a sovereign authority. The head of the king or the queen that was on the gold coin basically gave you uh, the uh, the the freedom, the license to to use it as though it were worth what it said it was worth, because. If it was not, supposing you found that your gold coin that you had just received was default, faulty in any way, you went to the mint and you exchanged it for a proper gold coin, a gold coin that was worth everything it was. So what made it money was the minting and the imprimatur of the sovereign. And so... As Marx says in one of his uh, writings, in this form, these coins were already symbols of themselves. And it was a short trip from here to understanding that money is a symbol and money uh, sort of circulating as valueless pieces of paper or eventually coins that really did not embody value. They just were pieces of metal. But the most important thing about them was the symbol. So that is the first thing you have to understand is that even when, Gold and silver circulated. It was not gold and silver that that was money. They were the opposite of money. They were commodities because you always exchange commodities for money. And so you exchange it for a commodity for that which is not any old commodity, but Something that can be used to buy all other commodities. There is no, so this is, this, this is what money is. And the second point I want to make about money, which is really interesting because again, you know, we are encouraged to think that everything that is bought and sold in capitalism is in fact a commodity, but that is not true. A commodity is something that is produced to be sold. Um, and Karl Polanyi pointed out that There are three things that capitalism likes to treat as commodities, which are not commodities. And the attempt to treat them as commodities causes a lot of problems. Those three things were land, labor and money. Nobody produced the land. Land is just there. It is the common heritage of humankind, the earth on which we live. And yes, different societies have occupied historically different pieces of the earth, but as at least within those societies, land is the common heritage of all. And ultimately the whole earth is the common heritage of humankind. It is not a commodity. Secondly, uh, labor. We don't have kids so that we can sell them to somebody. We have kids because they're part of our families. They're part of our affection and all those things. Yes, capitalism then treats our ability to work as a commodity. That is creates a lot of problems, etc. And finally, money. Money has no cost of production. Money is is essentially, like I said, an institution. Yes, in capitalism, we are encouraged to think that money is bought and sold, or at least borrowed and rented and so on, but this is again a whole different set of dynamics which we would examine more, more fully and another thing that that's important about money is that it is you know it does not have a cost of production and you know what's really interesting and nor do any of these other things what's really interesting is that in classical political economy before we all became subject to neoclassical economics Classical political economy, economists spent a lot of time trying to discover the special laws that govern the prices of land, labor and money. Because they do not, their prices are not governed by the same dynamics as the prices of ordinary commodities. So in those ways, money is not a commodity.
1: Uh, that's a very important point that you made about uh, money being li- by land. Land doesn't have a cost of production, but there's an, uh, if you privatize it, there's an excess price that you have to pay for access to the land, and that's economic rent. Similarly with money, uh, it doesn't have a cost of production, but you have to pay in order to get access to it, and that excess has caused interest. Now, uh, the 19th century great fight of political economy was to say, we don't want to have uh, the role of capitalism, certainly industrial capitalism, is to free economies from this legacy of feudalism. We don't want a landlord class that owns the land on hereditary basis and you have to pay rent to it in order to uh, have a house on it. Uh, We don't need that. Land should be uh, public in character. And people should have to, uh, uh, if there is a rent of location because some sites are more valuable than others, the government should get it, not individuals. Same thing with money. Uh, uh, You have access to money. You you shouldn't have to pay bankers that make loans for really pretty bad purposes, uh, as we saw in 2008 you had the whole american banking system basically corrupt uh, making loans that couldn't be paid so instead of having money as a private uh, you, uh private ownership it should be uh, a a public utility that's really what carl uh, polanyi was talking about and the same thing with labor of course uh, you're not have slavery anymore you don't have to buy your freedom uh, uh, the governments should protect, uh, labor. So that, uh, we're looking at things in terms of a, a balance sheet and, uh, what is the charge for an access to something that really is not a commodity and doesn't have a cost of production, but is going to be a free lunch for somebody. Should this free lunch be for the government and the public, uh, domain or should it be for some private privileged class, the 1%?
0: So, Michael, you, you said something really interesting there, and I just want to add that, you know, just as you said that, you know, money has to be regulated in a way that works best for society and for its productive activities,
1: and labour
0: has to be regulated in similar ways. You can't have slavery, you can't have over-exploitation, etc. Similarly, land also has to be regulated, not only for uh, in order that people do not make unreasonable rentier incomes out of land. Uh, rent is, in fact, unearned income, and as Michael says, classical political economy waged a big, you know, campaign against this sort of unearned income. So all those things, but also very importantly for our times of the, of the ecological emergency, of climate change, of pollution and, and, and um, biodiversity loss, that you cannot manage the land at the end of the day unless you have some sort of public ownership of it. Marx has a wonderful uh, little aside, you know, way back in the latter part of the 19th century when he was writing Capital, he says in his sections on rent, you cannot have rational agronomy while you have private property in land. What he meant by rational agronomy is simply the rational management of the land, its resources, etc. So this is all really important to reflect on. But maybe, Michael, we can now go to the fourth question, which is really what is the theory of how the dollar has served as the world's money. What would you say are the main things that are said to trot it out in justification, uh, uh, you know, to justify that the dollar can and should serve as the world's money?
1: Well, there was a great reluctance of uh, countries to uh, uh, break free of the power of the banking sector, uh, that of course the banking sector wanted to treat money as a commodity because they controlled uh, the money supply and they said, if you think of the money we create as a commodity, then uh, we deserve everything we get for it because we have it and you don't. And uh, we can put a fence around it and you have to uh, get through. So, uh, the, uh, essentially the United States, uh, if it didn't have all the money, at least it had all the credit. And without uh, really giving any money to Europe, uh, uh, it uh, said, well, uh, we've given you arms, and now you have to pay. You have to somehow uh, pay in the money that we've created, U.S. dollars. How are you going to earn the dollars uh, in, uh, in order to pay uh, the inter debts? debts? Uh, well, they said we'll collect it from Germany, but how is Germany going to uh, uh, pay, pay the dollars? Well, this is the point that there was a great argument. Between John Maynard Keynes uh, and also Harold Malton uh, and uh, the the right wing uh, Austrians and uh, Keynes said if America if you're going to say that uh, Germany has to end up keeping the whole financial system af- afloat by paying uh, the Allies to pay America then you ha- you're obliged to import. Germany uh, uh, enough material so you spend dollars buying German manufacturers, they spend the dollars and paying the Allies, the Allies paid you, and there's a circular flow. There has to be balance. Uh, in international, uh, of some kind of money, no matter how you uh, uh, look at money. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, instead, America said, well, we don't want any competition from Germany. We, they raised the tariffs against Germany and against uh, countries with depreciating currencies and say we're not going to uh, let Germany uh, earn the money uh, to pay the Allies. We're going to force you all into bankruptcy. And that's what started uh, essentially the depression that led to World War II. America uh, forced other countries to try to get dollars but didn't give them any way of earning these dollars. Uh, and so it it broke the whole uh, essence of international money, which uh, there has to be an, uh, an economy that's able to support this flow of payments and debts and uh, purchases and sales. All of that was broken. And the ability of America to act as a wrecker is what made it uh, the uh, central uh, power as a wrecker uh, financially, not uh, without having to uh, invade uh, Europe or Germany until World War Two.
0: Very interesting, Michael. So. Uh- if, if I had to answer this question, what is the theory of how the dollar served as the world's money? I would name a bunch of different elements in this theory. So perhaps the best place to begin is to to say that you know the uh, is to begin with Charles Kindleberger. So in the 1970s, and what's really interesting is that he doesn't come up with this theory where, when the United States really, according to him, emerged as the sort of you know the hegemon of the world, the provider of the world's money after the Second World War. It it actually emerges, the theory emerges when this dollar uh, system is in deep crisis and the dollar's gold link has been broken. Nevertheless, what he says at this point is that you see, once upon a time, Britain provided, you know, Britain was the most powerful country in the world. It provided the world with the, with money. And so the world's, you know, the whole world capitalist system can only function when there is a leading country which provides the leadership, which provides the public services, including the money. And, and all those things. So he comes up with that. He says that, you know, this system then was, has all had be, become broken by the first world war. And then you had this sort of interregnum. He's according to him, you know, the book is actually entitled the world in depression. And funnily enough, you can see how ideological this guy is because, you know, he wants to, you know, he says he's providing An explanation of the Great Depression, not the explanation. But if it is an explanation, how does it relate to all the other explanations? I mean, it's just fudging. Nevertheless, he just wants to use the Depression as a peg on which to hang his thoughts. So, and what he's and 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 hang his justification for why the dollar should be the world's money. So he says that the Great Depression happened because the United Kingdom was no longer able. And the United States, thanks to all the isolationists who dominated the United States, was not yet willing to give leadership to the world economy. And after 1945, everything was fine. America was the biggest country in the world. It provided leadership and, and, and so on. Of course, we are also told that the United States economy at the end of the Second World War accounted for half of world's production. I mean, Think about that. It did account for half of the world's production, but not because of the inherent productive dynamism of the world economy, but as we've said in previous shows, because the because the war destroyed the rest of the world economy while giving a massive boost to the american economy as the supplier of all sorts of uh, world arms material of course while europe was in in war all the gold of the world fled to the united states so the united states was sitting on top of a heck of a lot of gold reserves and and and, and of course uh, after the second world war another argument that is often used to say that the united states is entitled to and it is totally natural that the should be the world's money is that the United States was providing a security umbrella to the rest of the world. Of course, we should say that we should actually call it an insecurity umbrella, if anything, because what the United States was doing was in fact increasing the insecurity of the world, not uh, increasing its security. So these are the main elements of of this system, and so this brings us because the analogy with the uk is so important it's really time now to address the final question of today's show and we as you know we are going to do the other, another five questions later on in the next show but in today's show we have to answer the question what was the sterling system really like and 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 uh, what was the problem with it? So maybe I'll I'll just start this point by simply saying that you know uh, most people say that the Stirl- you know think of the sterling system when they are being you know and and they associate it with gold. They call it the gold standard system, which prevailed sort of roughly between 1870 to 1914 or thereabouts. And people think that you know it was the Attachment to gold that gave, you know, the, the link between sterling and gold that gave great stability to the system and it prevented the system from becoming, uh, you know, from, from suffering too much inflation and, 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 and uh, currency movements and so on and so forth. But in reality, the gold peg was, or was not perhaps the most important element of it. The system did not work because of gold. The system worked because of empire. And this was made also, very clear uh, in two books that I'd like to refer to. One was a really interesting, uh, it's very interesting that uh, Keynes's Indian Currency and Finance uh, is often regarded as the primer for the gold standard. So, the gold you know, we are told that in Indian Currency and Finance, which was published in 1913, it was Keynes's first book. This, uh, you know, it was, we, we see that. Um, how the gold standard really worked, but people rarely ask themselves, why should a book on Indian currency and finance be regarded as a primer on the gold standard? Well, the answer is very simple because India, the jewel in the crown of the British Empire, played a disproportionate role in its functioning. And of course, this is further than corroborated uh, many decades later by another book, which is also worth reading by Marcelo De Checo called Money, and empire, in which again, Marcelo de Checo actually lays bare the relation between money and empire. So, what was the sterling system? If we if we look at that map again, uh, I can explain to you very clearly uh, exactly what the sterling system was. Uh, so, basically. Uh, In the sterling system, we are told that the UK in particular exported a lot of gold to the rest of the world. Well, uh, sorry, a lot of capital to the rest of the world. How did it get this capital? The UK is a tiny economy in relation to the rest of the world. Well, it got this uh, uh, capital because it extracted surpluses. So you can see here the uh, blue arrows show all the money going from the Caribbean, from Africa, but principally. From British India, which at that time, of course, included uh, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and also uh, 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 Burma, and, and so on. So the British Empire income went. All of this was centralised in the UK, and essentially the surpluses. And where did these surpluses come from? They came from taxing the empire and equally importantly they came from the massive export surpluses that the empire ran with the rest of the world where these poor people impoverished people in the empire were working their guts out to produce the cotton the tea the coffee the rice the wheat etc which was regu- which was exported to the rest of the world while often people starved this is not the least reason why you had regular famines in places like india and so on and it was exported to the rest of the world earning for Britain. The surpluses, which it then exported, we are told to the rest of the world, but it aims so. If you look at the red arrows, they show you where the capital exports really went. They went to North America. They went to Southern Africa, particularly South Africa, and to the colonies, and they went to Europe. So they basically went to other parts of what we would today call the imperial world. And without this ability to export capital. Britain would not have been able to maintain the gold standard. Michael, perhaps you want to add a couple of things here as well.
1: Well, there were many books uh, about uh, Europe, the world's banker, Britain, the world's banker. And uh, then uh, Griffin, uh, in his time, talked about uh, America as the world's banker. But what does it mean to be a banker? Well, banks produce debt. That's uh, what credit is and uh the real question is do you really want bankers to run the world economy uh do you even want bankers to run the domestic economy right now you could say that bankers run uh britain's economy and you saw what happened uh since margaret thatcher when she turned it over to the city of london do uh, you saw what uh, bankers have done running the american economy since uh uh Obama's uh, administration in 2008, uh, uh, bankers run an economy in order to uh, take wealth from it and put into their own uh, profits, which is what Britain did, uh, to India. And then it used these profits, as you said, uh, to send on to North America and other industrial countries. Uh, neither Britain nor America, as a world banker, really helped the world grow. And so what you need, uh, since money is political after all, is uh, not to let financial bankers uh, decide who is going to get what resources in the world and how do we develop the whole world, uh, but you're going to have some kind of governments, say, uh, the Public interest is more important than the interest of the 1% of the population that are uh, the financial bankers of the world. The 99% should run the world in the public interest, including fixing global warming and the other things that we've talked about, uh, not uh, simply making more money financially by loading economies down with debt. That's the big context.
0: Absolutely, and you know when you mention banking, you know the this understanding the sterling system fully also involves understanding that at this time there were actually two quite different financial systems that were operating. So the the British system, which was really the linchpin of the whole sterling system, which operated the imperial, uh, 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 you know, the, the supply of surpluses from the empire, and then it's uh, uh, then then the and sorry the, the in inflows in of surpluses from the empire and the outflows to the uh, uh, to europe and the and european offshoots basically um, this system really was basically the kind of uh, financial system which was inherited from the feudal world um, and this financial system basically ran on a short-term basis. It gave short-term credit, uh, pure for commercial reasons, for speculative reasons, etc. Britain did when it exported capital, uh, uh, export capital in a, on a slightly more long-term basis. But again, it only it viewed these investments merely from the point of view of its interest income and rentier income. Meanwhile countries like the united states germany and other parts of the world they borrowed this money and invested it productively which is the reason why this period of the gold standard uh, saw also the, the the immense industrialization in areas outside britain this industrialization also of course contributed to the deindustrialization of the united kingdom because it progressively lost uh, a sh- w- share of the world market to, to 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 these other competing powers. Now, these two different systems, which by the way Hilferding also um, elaborated on, uh, he he explained in his book Finance Capital. So he basically saw these other financial systems, like the German in particular, uh, and to some extent the United States, as systems that were the opposite of the British system. They were not based on short-term credit; they provided long-term industrial credit. For industrial investment, and they these banks had an interest in creating long term relationships and making sure these industrial enterprises succeeded in the long run. They were not for the immediate gain uh and and, and, and speculative gain they were happy to take a stable share of uh, a productive income so this is this is a very important point that one has to to remember and the second thing one has to so 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 the, this archaic system the short term system very interestingly we will see when we discuss the dollar system is that particularly after 1971 this short term financial system has been recreated in the united states you know uh, the, the U.S. had, as Hilferding said, this better type of financial system, a productively oriented one, and of course, Depression-era regulation made it even more so. But after, uh, well, from the 70s onwards, you saw a long process of deregulation, which has a bit of a culmination in the repeal of the Depression-era Glass-Steagall Act in 1999, which began to convert this system into. This uh, more British style system. And of course, this coincides with the so-called Bretton Bretton Woods II period, the post-71 period of dollar uh, so-called hegemony. And, uh, we will discuss the dynamics of that later, but I just wanted to draw that, that connection for now. And the yeah. second thing, sorry, Michael.
1: Yes, please. Of yeah, I want to say one thing about, uh, that's very, what you say about finance living in the short run is very important. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there was an alternative and I have a chapter about that in my, uh, killing the house. And the alternative was Germany and central banks, uh, that there was, uh, the banks worked with the government and were heavy industry, to take a long-term view of the economy. And this isn't something abstract. When World War I broke out in 1914, there were articles written in the British press about uh, why Britain was likely to lose the war. And it was likely to use because, they said, our financial system is uh, quasi-feudal. It lives in the short run. The, um, uh, when a stockbroker in England uh, buys stock, they want to use the company... To pay out all of its income and dividends. They don't want the company to reinvest. They want to make the stockholders rich by paying out dividends and uh, stock buybacks. Uh, the Germans, uh, with the government, use their dividends to reinvest in uh, capital formation. And they said that because of the uh, Reichsbank in Germany and other Central European practice, uh, it's likely that uh, the uh, the uh, German and its allies uh, are going to be able to outlast uh, England because uh, English finance is uh, self-destructive. And uh, really, the difference you're talking about is between uh, industrial capitalism and the old feudal finance capitalism. But after World War I, it turned out that instead of having the productive, socialized German system, you had finance capitalism or neo-feudal uh, money under the uh, direction of the United States, which has always followed the British system, short term, hit and run, grab. Imp- uh, the more you can impoverish the uh, debtor, uh, the more money you have in your own hand, uh, as opposed to... Uh, public uh, banking. So this is all important. Is, is money and credit, we're back to, is it going to be a public utility uh, run in the public interest by governments, or is it going to be run by bankers whose objective is to impoverish the economy and uh, in order to enrich themselves?
0: Yeah. And so maybe we've got been going on for quite a while now. We have certainly passed an hour. So maybe we'll wrap up. And I just want to make one point in wrapping up. And that is, you know, we are. So in trying to use sterling system as, a, you know, as a you know, sterling system works, so the dollar system should work. That's the justification. But we've already seen that the sterling system rested on empire. And 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 which the Americans do not have. So we will see next week how that in fact, what what implications that had. But there is another point, which is we are told that the sterling system worked fine until the First World War broke it down. But then the question arises if that was the case, why wasn't it recreated after the First World War? Because in fact it was already weakening. And one of the arguments that I particularly appreciate about Marcelo De Checo's book is that he says that, you know, there is a tendency of, uh, 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 in the Discussing world monetary systems to try to understand the world monetary system in Ricardian terms or in terms of free trade, as though the world is a single seamlessly unified world economy. But in fact, he said, we have to understand it in Listian terms, referring to Friedrich Liszt, who emphasized the centrality of national economies. And he says, one of the things that is very interesting, uh, which is important to understand, is that the, what we call the gold-Sterling system was actually quite a congeries of different entities doing different things for their own reasons. So, for example, some countries... Um, accepted the gold standard because they simply wanted to have, you know, uh, loans from the United Kingdom and so on. Other countries actually remained on a a silver standard because they felt that since silver was depreciating at that time, that it would be useful uh, because their exports would be cheaper, and these these countries were feudal countries who exploited their own peasantry so that they could export. So they, and of course, India was kept on a, on a silver standard. There's a whole big story about that. So, but the but the main point is that other countries that uh, some other countries that joined the gold standard, like Germany, they did not do so because they thought, oh, the British were running a great system and we should subordinate ourselves to it. On the contrary, they made the mark convertible into gold as potentially a competing currency. So the gold, the, the gold standard system, the sterling uh, gold system was already becoming destabilized well before the First World War. Um, and there was one final point that one should make. So this was the external reason for destabilization is the industrialization of rival powers, contender powers like Germany. A second reason for the destabilization is was domestic the increasing organization of the working class was no longer going to accept the sort of punishment that was regularly meted out to a less organized working class in order to maintain the external value of the currency. If you have a gold parity and then you have some problems, then you have to essentially impose like you know, your your currency is, facing downward pressure, you have to essentially raise interest rates and so on in such a way that you are imposing a recession on your economy, something that's also very relevant today. So as working People became more and more organized. They it was it became more and more difficult to impose the discipline of unemployment on working people, which is the other reason why a gold standard was never it was never going to work. Uh, so that's it's, uh, that's something that we should always underline.
1: Yes, I agree. So
0: okay, that's great. So I think Michael, we've we've sort of covered the main points of uh, the first five questions. And I think that uh, I'm really looking forward to discussing now that we've laid the foundation of understanding uh, the basis of our critique of the dollar system. Next time we'll get into the dollar system in a, in a, in a proper way, beginning with the questions of exactly how the sterling system ended, what really happened in the interwar period what was the so-called Bretton Woods one between 45 and 71? What was the so-called Bretton Woods two since 1971? Um, And then finally, what is the nature of the unfolding crisis today? What are the main elements, etc? So really looking forward to that conversation, Michael, and uh, thank you. And thanks to all our listeners. And uh, thanks also, I should say to Paul Graham, Uh who you cannot see, but who always helps us uh, do the technical uh, recording and and, and many other things, editing and so on and so forth. So thank you to all as well. And uh, thank you to Ben for hosting our show, Ben of uh, Geopolitical Economy Report. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Bye-bye.